Welcome to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. We are informally debating issues that concern Zionists about life, culture, and politics in Israel. Hi, I'm your host, Liel. I'm here with Mike and Matt. Hi, guys. Hi, Liel. Good morning, Liel. Good morning. How are you doing? I think as well as can be expected in our tumultuous times. Okay for not okay. Mm, Yeah. Today in this episode, we're going to be talking about the future of Gaza, which is a very big topic right now that many people have different ideas about. And there is absolutely no clear understanding or decision being made regarding this topic. So it's actually a really And that's just in the government. (laughs) That's just in the government, not to talk about the rest of the world. We uh, will be talking about what the future of Gaza may look like. And uh, Matt, you're going to start us off. Yes, I am. Um, And I'm going to propose the idea that Israel should maintain security control of the Gaza Strip after the day after, as it's being referred to after what happens when... And I'll disagree. And Mike will uh, will disagree. Uh, Mike will be contrary. So, look, I know there's been conversations happening both on this podcast and also in the wider world about what does victory look like for Israel? after the war in Gaza, Israel's stated goal is there will be no more Hamas. So if the stated goal is there is no more Hamas, the next question is, okay, great. Then what should there be after Hamas? And that's the topic that we're going to be dealing with, as you you said, Liel. And there are all sorts of different options being thrown around the table and all sorts of different ideas. And for me, the only realistic option right now is if we're going to say that Israel wants to destroy Hamas because We can never have even the slightest risk of what happening October 7th happening again. The only way to guarantee that is to go kaholavan, to go blue and white, and say that Israel has to take care of their own security. Israel is responsible for doing that. And we there was an episode a couple weeks ago in this format discussing about why it happened. And people the the discussion was about whether Israel had dropped the ball, whether the, the strategy had been poor. If Israel maintains security control, so long as it's done properly, there won't be the concern whether the strategy of appeasement of Hamas or whether dropping the ball on the other side of the fence, that those conversations will be rendered irrelevant because Israel will be in the Gaza Strip. Israel will be keeping a constant lookout, a constant finger on the pulse of what's happening there and maintaining that security control to guarantee the security of Israel, to guarantee any border communities that may be rebuilt. We don't know quite what's going to happen with those border communities Kibbutzim or Shavim, etc. But anyone that's in that sort of area, and of course, to prevent rocket attacks coming from Gaza. And in order for uh, Israel to be able to make sure that that will not happen again, that, that we don't have Hamas building up its reserves of strength and reserves of ammunition and reserves of rockets and reserves of and, and building tunnel network in which they can take away our, our people and keep them hostage and all these terrible things which happened October 7th, the only way for it to get guaranteed to be happen that our security is under our own control, that we're responsible for our own security. Quite what that will look like is, of course, the question which is open to discussion. But I think the bottom line is Israel has to maintain the security control, has to uh, have its forces there, keeping a constant check on what's going on. And I think without wishing to preempt too much what Mike is going to what Mike is going to argue I think if we introduce the idea of an international agency or an international body or a different country doing it I don't think that is a guarantee for Israel that we our security would be secure 
For example, we know that the Qataris are big supporters of Hamas. They have the leadership of Hamas living in Qatar. They've been sending in millions and millions of dollars in cash over the last number of years. So obviously they're not an option, but the Qataris are active in the Arab League. So then you say, okay, well, the Arab League, but the Qataris are active in that. So we, we wouldn't want to, to trust on that. Then we say, well, what about UNRWA? Because the United Nations already have an infrastructure in Gaza. And we see how that turned out when UNRWA schools, UNRWA clinics, UNRWA organizations, UNRWA buildings are being used for um, storage of Hamas weapons. When some of the employees of UNRWA themselves are Hamas members, so that wouldn't be a good option. I'm not convinced the United States would want that headache. Um, the EU, I wouldn't want to trust my security and safety on, on EU forces. So at that point, so, okay, well, who's left? It's us. We're the only ones who can take care of ourselves. And that's why I am pushing for the idea that Israel, despite the challenges, despite uh, many of the uh, public relations problems with it, despite many of the practical problems, despite the fact that, quite honestly, my sons who are going to go be going into the army in the next, next couple of years, I don't want them serving in Gaza. I, I think it's a nightmare. But ultimately, I think what Israel has to do for the security of its c civilian population is to be in charge of the security there. Again, it could be for a year, it could be for two years. Uh, eventually, I hope there'll be a better solution. But in the immediate short term, that's the way to do it. Okay, well, here's why I disagree. First of all, neither of us are putting on the table that we should totally withdraw and let the people of Gaza fix up. Because the last time there was a vacuum, that's where Hamas came from. So unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be the social, cultural infrastructure for them to... Okay, so when you say, you know, despite all the difficulties and the, how terrible it's going to be that, a, you know, another generation of 18 to 21 year olds are going to be patrolling Gaza. Occupation doesn't just mean if we control security, we also control their lives. That means we're running their roads and their mail and their schools and their utilities and their traffic lights to, to take over Gaza uh, in a population of 2 million people who don't want you there. And there's no end game there, there, to say, well, we'll see in a year or two what changes. Well, <laughs> we occupied Gaza from 67 to 2005. There is no way out. Once you start, now I'm not, I'm not saying that in the weeks after winning the war, Israel won't be in charge, but the rebuilding of Gaza, I don't think is realistically an Israeli, certainly not an Israeli obligation. And I don't think that it's reasonable to expect Israel to be able to pull it off. And I think the damage, and, and I, I'm with you, I, let's put aside the public relations damage of it, but just the damage to Israeli society and living with the burden on the taxpayer and on the, the psychology and the culture of sending young men and women into the army to have to run the life of two million people, it's unsustainable. And it just perpetuates, we, we've played that strategy, it just leads to deeper and deeper into the conflict. So when you listed, you know, different organizations, could they do it? And you listed ones that couldn't. Well, I agree with you. I would not trust the EU. By the way, I wouldn't trust anyone. I think that the safest, if your goal is absolute security, it has to be, I agree with you. But I also believe that sometimes you have to risk the security of danger for possibilities for a better outcome. And so while it might be incrementally taking more of a risk because Israel's sharing its security burden with outsiders, which we normally don't do, here, I think in Gaza, that might be the preferred option. And I don't think it could be the EU. I don't think it could be the US. I certainly don't think it could be the Arab League or Qatar. I think, I think what, what you would need to talk about 
is, and they have the, the deep pockets for it. And they have the, you know, just financially, and I think they have the wilt for a more stable region, is you need the Gulf Arab states to join a coalition under American guidance and leadership. America, after World War II, developed something that's historically called the Marshall Plan, named for the designer of the plan, which was, now that we defeated the Germans and the Japanese, and interestingly, nobody was worried, whoa, after we killed all those Germans and Japanese, isn't that just going to make another generation of Germans and Japanese, they hate Americans? I guess we can't kill. Cease fire with Germany and Japan. All right, that's a different, that's a different topic. Tell, tell us how you really feel, Mike. Yeah, I also hear people yelling, you know, every time Hamas launches rockets, isn't that creating a generation of Israelis that just want to be at war with Palestinians? We should be telling Hamas to stop launching rockets. I don't hear that either. This whole, we're going to create the next generation. Thanks, Obama. But that's a different topic. But the, the, <laughs> Stay tuned for the next one. <laughs> yeah. But the idea that it is in the self-interest of the Gulf Arab states. Right now, there's this Cold War, which isn't so cold because it's a proxy war between the Gulf Arab states, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, with the Iranian Shia, and on the other hand, the Sunni, you know, Islamist, Hamas, Muslim Brotherhood murderers. So... What, what, the, what the Gulf states, what places like Saudi Arabia want, is a much more quiet region where they can go about participating in the world economy, developing the Middle East. And so, like most of their Arab neighbors, they're tired of the Palestinians shooting themselves in the foot and destabilizing the entire region. The de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia has already said, when this war is over, we're going to continue our normalization talks with the Israelis. He knows what direction he wants the region to go. And they are tired of the Palestinian problem. They are tired of hoping that the Palestinians will make good decisions to get out of the problem because Palestinian culture seems bent on scapegoating Israel for their lack of responsible leadership. Okay, well, that, that's just a dead end that's going to keep the Palestinians suffering. And the Saudis, I, I do think, get it. The UAE, Bahrain, you know, this idea that you will never make peace with Arab countries until you resolve the Palestinian issue. I think what we're, what we're seeing is the possibility of the reverse. That's actually not true. In fact, once you start normalizing with Arab countries, they can help develop a UAE sort of this, this modern cooperate with the Western world style culture among the Palestinians. They might need the American help, to develop a Marshall Plan. The Germans and the Japanese at the end of the war, Japan was was flat. There was nothing left standing in Japan. Germany, German cities, there wasn't a brick on top of a brick. Berlin was gone. And what the Americans wanted to show was, look, if you join us in the democratic world and participate in a capitalist economy and join the world community of healthy states, you will do a lot better than under evil dictators who will lead you to ruin. And so the Marshall Plan was economic, cultural embrace of those countries to help them build up using Western-style countries as a model. I think that, and, and, and there are rumors about this, that the Saudis are saying if the Americans give us the support and we fund it, if the Americans do it alone, I don't think America wants to do it. I agree with you. B, I don't think they could do it. In other words, I think you need Arabs on the ground helping the Palestinians build a way to a better future. They need to see that it's an Arab effort. So American-guided, Arab-funded, and led effort could make a change in Gaza and turn it into just a stable economic, cultural part of the world, which could then spill over into anger at the PA. And why aren't you guys doing that for us? Meaning, instead of inviting, because the one thing you didn't mention was, what if Israel does what they do in the West Bank? Have 
Israel controls security and have the Palestinian Authority run the municipal life of the Palestinians. That's not going great in the West Bank. It's 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 just not getting any. It's not progressing. We're stuck in a stalemate, and so perhaps this new model and I, and, I'm, and I'm suggesting it partially for its novelty. We haven't tried this yet, and nothing else is working. So maybe that's the model. An Arab-led, not the full participation of the entire Arab world with Qatar involved. Let's leave Qatar out of it. They want to be the Switzerland of the Middle East. They want to stay neutral while they pump millions of dollars into Hamas. Good. You're neutral, whatever that means. But the Saudis want the Palestinians to be quiet so that they can join with Israel to topple Iran and make Saudi Arabia the, the hegemon of the Middle East. Okay, we can help them do that of the Arab world. So let's do that. That's what I'm recommending. I, I, again, is this going to happen? I don't know. But to me, that's my dream thing. And it could lead to a fundamentally different Gaza, which in theory could lead to a fundamentally different West Bank, which would mean the Israeli-Palestinian conflict would enter in a fundamentally new phase, which might be able to deconflict. So, Matt, having that this novel proposal, first of all, do you think that it's possible? If so, how do you think it would change the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? And then if not, again, it will put Israel in a situation like you proposed initially, where Israel would have to, again, be responsible for the Gaza Strip. Also, I'm just curious, as amazing as this proposal sounds and, and theoretically could really change the face of the Middle East, which I think is something that a lot of us want, I'm hesitant because up until now, you know, the Ara other Arab states really haven't come forward hadn't had enough of a reason to come forward and, um, you know, help us solve this issue with the Palestinians. And so a part of me wonders whether there's enough motive there. Okay, wow. So there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, questions there to unpack. I hope I cover all the bases. Yeah, sounds nice. Sounds lovely. Is it realistic? I mean, I, I know you said, Mike, that you weren't sure if it would, would actually happen, but the, the theory is there. And I, I think the theory sounds good with a couple of important caveats. The first one is one of the claims that people are making about why this kicked off in the first place was exactly the Iranians were trying to stop that move towards normalization between the Saudis. And this gave a good reason, because once the Saudis and other Arab countries see Israeli jets dropping bombs on Gaza, that puts an end to that, right? The populations won't allow for that sort of move to happen. So is that always going to be that kind of like veto problem? I, I, I don't know. But what you're suggesting would sound like it's trying to get rid of that Mm -hmm. veto issue, right? So in that sense, it sounds nice. There would have to be a major buildup of trust, right? We have deals with UAE and with Bahrain, etc. as you said. Saudi Arabia, we're moving towards normalization, but there's still no formalized deal. There's still serious question marks about that level of commitment. Is it really a case of they want normalization or they just want another friend against Iran? And even that whole conversation about whether uh, there should be, um, the Saudis should be given nuclear capability. And a number of Israeli leading politicians have said, absolutely not. There's still that lack of trust there, right? So I feel like there has to be a buildup of trust somewhere along the lines for that to work. The second thing, and I think, Leo, you, you, were, you were suggesting this, is let's say that the plan comes off, right? Let's say this, this dream plan comes off. The Saudis rebuild the infrastructure with the help of UAE and all the other Arab Gulf states, the ones which are not <laughs> Qatar, um, and they rebuild the infrastructure. And then either they leave or they get thrown out by some new Hamas, right? Hamas, some kind of new form of Hamas, are we going to be back in the same situation where, again, we have to go in and destroy everything that's been built and start all over again? Now, that might be a very pessimistic way of seeing it. 
that might not happen. Let's say Mike's plan comes off. Uh, we're calling it the Mike plan now, not the Marshall plan. The Mike plan <laughs> comes off. And in 15 years' time, Gaza is a prosperous, well-developed economy. It's doing very nicely. And then Singapore of the Middle East. There we go. That's what they keep saying with the beaches and the whole thing. And then 15 years' time, suddenly there's a new Hamas in town, whatever we want to call them, and things go pear-shaped, right? So maybe you say, okay, so for 15 years' worth, it's worth it. And then deal with that in 15 years' time? Or do we say, no, we have to take a much, much long-term view? I think something we're all feeling, though, at the moment is <laughs> there's no such thing as long-term planning at the moment. So maybe, yeah, sure, let's go for the next couple of years, see what happens. And then, so it's a nice plan. I'm just worried that some of the crucial fundamentals of it aren't there, right? The, the foundations aren't there, the trust and the goodwill isn't going to stretch far enough to that. So that well, I'll respond to your second point first. I think it's ironic that you're saying because this might work for 15 years, we shouldn't do it, as opposed to the other plan, which almost certainly can't. I mean, it's just going to be a disaster in 15 years. So let's choose something that's going to be horrible versus something that might be good, but then might take a bad turn. That's right. first of all. Second of all, I would love to see a Hamas rise up against Saudi advisors, start killing Saudis. And I would like to see how the Saudis handle that new Hamas. I don't think it would be as gentle as the Israelis. And for all the accusations of brutality, when Arabs kill Arabs, Arabs start killing Arabs. And so the, the, that would be the end of that. Like, it, again, that's another reason to not put it under Israeli control. Any organization that rose to challenge. And, and, and one of the nice things about dealing with an evil dictatorship, which, I mean, come on, that's what Saudi Arabia is. They're a dictatorship. They're a, they're a kingdom. And that's all sorts of problematic in terms of the lives of the people who live there. I'm not I'm not recommending a Saudi Arabian style government anywhere in the world. But one of the advantages is Mohammed bin Salman's the king. He's not officially yet, but he will be and he's running the country. And he said already, exactly on your point of Iran. It's not going to work Iran. You're not derailing us. You're not. And in fact, we're going to take this out of the equation of buttons that you push to mess with us. And I I just want to emphasize how badly Saudi Arabia wants to take down Iran. A couple years ago, the, the, the Iranians bombed Saudi refineries, oil refineries in Saudi Arabia, causing them billions and billions of dollars worth of damage. Saudi Arabia looked to the West. What are you going to do about it? The West did nothing because they didn't want to engage in Iran. And so the Saudis are looking regionally. How do we stop that? That's not something that can happen again. We don't think we can directly take on Iran in a war. Our army probably would lose. But what we can do is we can maneuver around them. This is very much in Saudi interest. Your first point about trust is obviously true. But this I'm, I'm suggesting this is part of a normalization process. In other words, it, 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 these, these things have to be done simultaneously. Your plan, quote unquote, doesn't come with risk. It has built-in disaster in it with built-in security. My plan has a degree of risk, no question. But it could have an excellent outcome. And so that's why I'm, 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 I'm uh, I don't know if it's the Mike plan, but, uh, but that's why, uh, that, that's, that would be like a dream outcome, I'm saying. Yeah. It's not, when I say I don't know if it's going to happen, that doesn't mean I think it's outside the realm of possibility. I, there are people really talking about this outside. I don't, know, I don't know how deeply the Israelis are involved in these talks, but it's my understanding that there's actual diplomatic conversations going on between those states and the U.S. Can I ask, ask you both? Practically speaking, what you think will happen in the most realistic scenario? Wow. Uh, <laughs> we said that things are so uncertain at the moment. We can't plan ahead. We also can't predict ahead. Look, I, I think Israel will take security control, at least initially. I don't think there's a 
I don't think at this point there's even a question. I know the United States the other day got very nervous when Bibi was talking about it in a very bold sense. But they also know that the day after, whatever that day after looks like, is going to be Israel going to be there. And I think Israel will have to be there, at least initially. In terms of security, right? I understand everything you're saying before about like the traffic lights and the trash collection. And no, short term, I think you're right. Um, how long short term is, of course, when we, see, we saw the Americans in Afghanistan and Iraq, their idea of short term <laughs> was decades, right? So um, I really, taking away the, the debate format for a second, I really hope that will not be the case, right? I, I don't see this as a good idea for Israel to be in control of trash, trash collection and crossing guard duty and, and all those things in Gaza. It's not a good idea. So I think the initial will be the security thing, right? To sort of, what do you call it, like stamp down on any embers which are still burning which may be there. I don't mean physically, right? I hope that's clear. And then it's going to have to be rebuilding. And that's the question, right? Who's who's going to be in charge of that rebuilding? What is that rebuilding going to look like? I don't know. They'll have to be rebuilding. I mean, there's <laughs> the whole place is basically a one big trash site now. There's, there's, there's no buildings there. There's no schools. There's no homes. There's, there's, there's nothing there. So there's going to have to be rebuilding. The question is, who's going to be responsible for it? And that's this, right, this whole conversation. Um, and who's going to be supervising it? Because what we don't want to happen is a new tunnel network emerging underneath the, in the foundations of all the rebuilt buildings. So a few, let me basically avoid the question and say for a few months it'll be Israel doing security. Yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. after that, God knows. I'll avoid the question in a different way. My rule of thumb, and I'm, I don't claim to be able to predict anything, but my rule of thumb is life turns out not as well as you had hoped, but not as bad as you feared. And so my guess is it will be some sort of Arab coalition with, you know, Western country guidance, and it just won't work as well as I laid out the possibility. It'll stumble along and then probably collapse. In other words, when these Western countries say, Israel, you cannot occupy the the Gaza Strip, and then Israel says, okay, guys, help us out. You got to help us out. So I think that's what they're going to. America doesn't want to occupy. The Arabs don't want to occupy without Western cover. And so I think there'll be some sort of shared responsibility. That's my guess. And I don't think it'll work out so well. The the other thing also, again, because of this whole idea of not being able to predict what's going on, I think also what happens in Israel politically after the war is going to be important as well. Will there be an election? Will there not be an election how will that pan out, right? I think that will also change things drastically. But for now, we have a government, and we have a government who have their plan, and I guess we'll have to live with that for now, at least. Yeah, I always talk about with my students that, you know, they're like, well, what's how are things going to change? And I'm like, because we can't see how the change is going to happen from here. It doesn't mean that there won't be change. What To make the change happen means a whole bunch of variables that we don't know are going to change. And so all new possibilities are going to open up. That's what's happening here. We're in a We're in a paradigmatically different situation now. And so that will continue to happen. We're in a very rapidly moving transition period. And so we can't necessarily see from here what things are going to change and what opportunities are going to be available. But like in 48, like in 67, like even 73, these the, even the difficult times in Israel's history led to building better things and moving forward. And I hope that's what's going to happen here. Not that it's worth the price of 1,200 lives, but hopefully it'll build a better future. Yeah, definitely. I think this is one of the obviously more complicated questions and there really are no answers, but I think... Uh you know, putting out all of the possibilities as well as giving us some optimism of what could be just the, it's the unknown currently, but what could be um, is important. And so we should hold on to that. 
Well, we can. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Bye. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. In everything we do, we hope to connect our fellows to Israel as home, that our Massah fellows will feel at home in Israel and understand more about Israel in all of its diversity. We connect our fellows to Jewish peoplehood, to feel an affinity for Judaism and a sense of belonging to the Jewish people. The connection is active and meaningful in their lives. And finally, personal development. And in the case of this podcast, our goal is that you'll be able to use the tools and learning for reflection and future development in conversations about Israel and Judaism. If this episode is meaningful to you, please subscribe and share with somebody that you think it will be meaningful to.